away. Uh, welcome to IWP. I'm Matt Owens. I'm the Dean of Academics. For those of you who don't know about IWP and Institute of Politics, uh, we are an independent graduate school, National Security Affairs. We offer uh, 18 uh, certificates and five separate master's degrees that have to do with national security. It's my great pleasure today to introduce Kate Scheinman, who, of course, is the executive director of the Alexander Hamilton Society. I'm a great fan. I happen to be on the board of advisors. And I was at the meeting where it was actually conceived. So it was one of those things where they were talking about it. I said, this is a brilliant idea. Why didn't anybody think of this before? But anyway, you've been in business now, what, six years? Six years, years yeah. yeah. And doing a great, uh, a great uh, job. I think there's a great deal of uh, affinity between uh, Alexander Hamilton Society and IWP in terms of our mission. As I like to put it, uh, in so many graduate schools or so many uh, uh, institutions of uh, higher learning where we have IR programs, you have a sterile debate between Mach Machiavelli and Kant as they talk past each other. And of course, international relations is much more nuanced that. And that's certainly one of the things that, <clears throat> that the Alexander Hamilton Society does. Uh, they have chapters, uh, you go into much more detail if you want, but chapters in a number of different places. And uh, I think they do a terrific job of uh, educating uh, uh, undergraduates when it comes to uh, uh, national security fair, which is the topic of uh, Gabe's uh, talk today. As I mentioned, he's the uh, director, executive director of the Alexander Hamilton Society. He's an honors graduate of uh, Harvard and is completing his PhD at Georgetown University. He has previously been a research analyst at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, a policy director at the Jewish Policy Center, where he co-edited the Journal of uh, International Affairs and, a widely, and is a widely published author on foreign policy and U.S. national security. So please help me in welcoming <laughs> um, and if I can just, normally I wouldn't, no, normally people don't like to add to their bios, but if I can also say I'm actually also a former Rumsfeld Fellow, um, and so thank you for folks from the Rumsfeld Foundation to, to come attend this. So uh, thanks to IWP for having me, and I'm, I'm glad actually I don't have to use a mic. This is actually a lot more fun uh, than, than projecting elsewise. Um, thank you to Mac, especially as Mac said, or you know, he was in the, in the title of Dean Atchison's book, you know, President at the Creation. Of, of the Alexander Hamilton Society uh, and a member of our advisory board um, and was recently down at the University of Dallas uh, on other business, but actually spoke to a group of our students on, I think it was, uh, was it Lincoln as a war president or, yeah, exactly. So uh, it's, it's really a great um, opportunity to kind of uh, mix sort of the IWP world and the AHS world together. So my talk uh, was entitled, uh, maybe it's not here, but uh, Educating Today's Students About International Relations. Uh, it's a very good title. Uh, it's actually very succinct and very accurate. The problem is that it's really vast, right? Um, I'm going to talk about it for 25 minutes or so. Uh, you at IWP are basically doing this every day and have been for a number of years, so there's no way I could possibly cover all of this. Uh, but I'm going to try and give you a little bit of my thoughts based on where I sit, uh, which is at the head of this organization that operates on 55 college campuses across the country. So first, I'd like to share with you the, land, the lay of the land as I see it, and then second, what we at the Alexander Hamilton Society are, are doing to try and uh, you know, deal with the challenges and take advantage of the opportunity that presents themselves in this space. 
Um, I'm, I'm going to have to be sweeping just because of you know, 25 minutes to talk about such a vast topic, but I hope that afterwards in conversation I could actually learn from a lot of you uh, who are, again, doing this on a daily basis here. So here goes. So the challenges in educating students in international relations. Uh, sadly, there are many. Um, and, they're, and they're getting more difficult. Um, it's sort of the beginning of the State of the Union, which is the President says the State of the Union is strong and then goes on to say all the reasons why it's not and then finishes as to why it's strong or can be strong again, which is kind of how this talk is going to go. But there are four main factors to me that collectively underpin why there are so many challenges um, and why this is going in such a discouraging direction. The first is the state of the disciplines. Um, by that I mean the discipline of political science and history. The second is the state of the faculty. Uh, the faculty that teach those disciplines. The, th the third is the state of the students. Uh, and, and the fourth, and finally, is the state of free speech that you see on college campuses. So let me go through each of these briefly. And although I'm handling them in sequence, obviously, uh, a lot of them go together. So first, the state of the disciplines, political science and history in particular. A 20-year battle, about maybe a little longer, a 25-year battle within political science discipline has been resoundingly won by what people call the quants. Uh, which is those who believe in the scientific gospel of quantitative methods, which is really a fancy word for statistical analysis. If you look at academic journals, uh, faculty hiring, specifically tenure-track faculty hiring, uh, uh, the curricula for PhD students in particular, um, the entire field now incentivizes students towards a particular type of methodology as opposed to an area of study. Um, what it means is that people are not being trained to become experts in, you know, some sort of uh, subject matter, but they're becoming to, they're trained to become experts in modeling and the actual methodology. And I'm not kidding in the sense that maybe this has happened to some of you. I'm not kidding in the sense that I've sat in on some workshops with, you know, graduate students or faculty papers where the paper says something along the lines of, you know, France and Switzerland having a militarized dispute in the 1960s. And you know, I sort of raise my hand and I say, you know, I'm, I'm not so familiar with that one. Uh, where did that come from? And the answer is often, well, it's in the data set I used and I can't go around cherry picking the data because otherwise it's not scientifically rigorous, right? And so you end up quibbling about coding. Um, you know, there are data sets out there about you know, militarized disputes going, you know, and, and how many casualty levels count and not count or how duration or purpose or all these sorts of different ways because they're meant to be given you know, we talk about today in the mass media about the sort of the, the data revolution and, and analytics. Well, somehow this made it to political science first, which is actually pretty rare. Usually academics are behind the trend as opposed to leading it. But in such a case is that you have people that are not understanding the, the logic or the context of what they're looking at. I'll give you another example. I've been uh, in, a, in a workshop, another, where someone presented a paper in that tried to determine the, the relationship between earthquakes or natural disasters and good governance and tried to make the argument that you know, certain countries are just prone to bad governance because they're prone to natural disasters. Doesn't sound so crazy, maybe it's an interesting question. What he had done is, in his work is because he didn't have enough data is that he used the model to randomly generate earthquakes around the world in order to build up enough data points to be able to actually find some statistical uh, uh, correlation or at least some statistical uh, uh, relevance to what he was doing. And as a consequence, he just added tons of thousands and thousands of earthquakes around the world. Now, if you thought that this was problematic enough, you then look and you realize that he's adding earthquakes in places there aren't even uh, fault lines. 
which means even if, even if you buy the method, there couldn't possibly be an earthquake uh, in certain places in the world because the world isn't built that way. It shows you the power of the quantitative uh, data revolutions that happen in political science and it's battle that they've won, period. The field of history has undergone a, a, a different metamorphosis um, that makes the study of international relations more difficult as well. The dominant trends in the discipline today are the study of social forces, particularly class, race, gender. And it's a conscious move away from the study of leaders and decision makers who, let's be honest, generally have been old white men. Now, there's nothing wrong with studying history from, through the lens of social movements. In fact, there's a lot of really interesting stuff there. But if you're gonna try and study and understand the foreign policies of states, you do need to look at the decision makers and the leaders, which by definition is a study of elites which is really kind of against the grain of where much of the, uh, of the field of history is going today. As a consequence of these two disciplines peeling off in different direction, a chasm opens up. And in this chasm is where what used to be the study of diplomatic and military history, which to me is, is, is really functionally a, a different way of saying the study of international relations, because those are kind of the two most important components. Um, and so if you're interested in that space, you either are trying to you either are tilted towards political science and, and end up trying to write a, a papers, courses, dissertations, book, what have you, that you're fighting the discipline in, or you're tilted towards history and you're, again, fighting the discipline in a, in a different way. As a consequence, today, both of the writings of these disciplines have become very inaccessible. Most peer-reviewed political science journals today, I don't, know if, I don't know if you've picked them up recently, but they read like medical journals. Um, it's inaccessible for a lot of students, and, and most importantly, I'd say it's inaccessible for a lot of policymakers. If you were to poll political scientists and historians today on the top five most important journals in their field for recognition in their field, and you were to poll policymakers in Washington, D.C. as to whether the top five go-to places for ideas or history, whatever, th there'd be no overlap. You know, foreign affairs might be the closest you get, and honestly, it's only because of the prestige of the name brand more than anything else. But and it's not peer reviewed. It's not peer reviewed. So it doesn't count. Right, so it doesn't count as an academic citation. I can, I can having, uh, doing my PhD in Washington at, at, at Georgetown, um, having uh, been involved in pub, uh, publishing in a lot of different venues, mostly mass media as opposed to academic journals, I can tell you you can publish 10 times in the Washington Post and be relevant policy-wise. It means jack squat uh, on your academic resume in terms of presenting at conferences or, or tenure track applications, things like that. So that's, that's the issue with the discipline. Two, the state of the faculty. Today, I would, I would posit that academics believe that the study of traditional and national relations, and by that I mean the relations of decisions made by states for issues between states, is actually less relevant, less important than it's ever been. And here's why I say this, and I'll hit you with some polling numbers to explain. In 2015, Foreign Policy Magazine, which by another magazine that has prominence in the policy world, but zero uh, in the academic world, Foreign Policy Magazine did a poll of international relations academics across the country. 40% labeled climate change as the most important issue facing the United States today. And it was, it was the number one, right? To give you some perspective, only 14% believed uh, weapons of mass destruction proliferation was the number one issue. In a similar survey conducted, and, and conducted out of William and Mary, it's the Teaching Research International Policy Survey, um, and they do a lot of these things, so it's a great resource if you want to get a sense of how academics thinks. The survey was done in February 2016. 700 IR academics were asked, what are the three most important policy issues facing the United States today? Similar question. 
The results were very similar to the FP poll I cited, but had a more detailed demographic breakdown, so to give you a sense of where the trend lines are going. For millennial academics, i.e. those aged under 35, climate change was the number one issue facing the United States at nearly 60% of those under 35 made climate change the number one issue. If you sort the respondents to the survey according to academic paradigms, by that I mean realism, liberalism, or constructivism, which they go to another problem with how political scientists taught, but this is the way political scientists thought. Not only are there respondents who identify under the Marxist paradigm, which means that they're self-avowed, because these are self-definite, they're self-avowed Marxists teaching international relations in American academia. So there's three main paradigms in, in the way international relations is taught these days in political science. One is realism. The second is liberalism, or liberal institutionalism, which is an, another word. And the third is constructivism. And I'm happy to go through some of that in, in Q. Well, it's less taught in the IR discipline in that way. I think it depends on the school. For, I, I, for the most part, it, it's, it's those three are the dominant ones. that fill, your, your intro to international relations, your IR 101 class, are dominated by these three. And then you get into sub-things like bureaucratic decision-making or, uh, or um, or uh, bargaining methods, or game theory, which is you know some of the economic discipline, but that gets kind of further down as to the big international outlooks. So, in this survey, somewhat, uh, at least a few people decided, well, none of the three paradigms fit me. I'm a Marxist, uh, so you know I'm not someone usually prone to hyperbole. But when people say there are Marxists teaching at American universities, uh, you know it's true. Uh, there's no other way around this. But 100% of the Marxists considered climate change to be the number one issue facing the United States. If you, sp if you break down the survey responses by political self-identification, uh, for liberals, people self-identify liberals, it's still climate change. For conservative, it's Russian assertiveness. So it shows you that there are big differences within the faculty in terms of how they approach these things. My point here isn't to say that climate change isn't a serious issue. That's not, that's not my argument. But if the majority of IR scholars, IR teachers, right, this is the key part, IR teachers, believe that it is the single most important issue facing the United States, then of course how they teach the study of history, the study of, of, of traditional international relations becomes much more trivial. How does studying the decisions of uh, you know, leaders going into World War I impact climate change? Obviously it doesn't. How, do you, how does studying the strategies of the United States during the Cold War impact what you do about China, uh, climate change? Of course it doesn't, and so you don't. So again, if the single greatest international relations issue facing the United States today is a scientific one that you know, can only basically be resolved one way or another through some sort of taxation and regulation, whatever have you, I don't want to get into that debate, then of course the international relations field really doesn't have a lot to say about that. So it just shows you how the mindset trickles down to what uh, these academics want to teach. Third, the state of students. Students today, frankly, are far more isolationist uh, than preceding generations. And I'm gonna throw a bunch of numbers at you, but I can also can speak that from experience because of where I sit at this organization. Uh, I can give you a brief anecdote. Before I was the executive director at Hamilton, uh, I also taught a lot at Georgetown as part of uh, in my PhD. Um, when I taught intro to IR at Georgetown, I'd always open the class by asking students, what is their earliest international political memory? This is a couple years ago. For most of the students, the answer was 9-11. 9-11 was the first thing they could broadly remember, which is not that surprising. You know, an 18-year-old from a couple years ago was 6, 9-11, that's 5, 6, that's 
probably about, if I ask most of you, that's probably about the earliest international uh, memory that you can probably cite and put together. If I ask the same question today, a few years later, the answer isn't 9-11. It's not even the invasion of Iraq. It's probably something that occurred in 2004, 2005, 2006. You know, it's, it's more likely the, 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 the mess that Iraq was in 04, 05, 06 than anything else. So if you only remember the American reaction to, to the 9-11 attacks, to the attacks on the homeland, and what you remember mo most or your formative years as, as a young person is sort of the largely ineffective response that we had at, at the time, or to some degree still to this day, then of course you're going to have a quite a different outlook than those who are only five years older and who remember 9-11. Just like you know, my parents' generation would say, well, you don't remember the Cold War and how it was, and their parents' generation would say, you don't remember World War II. I mean, it's not their fault, right? It just is. But it shows you as a consequence how critical the teaching of history really is. It's not something that uh, is it, transmitted by blood, right? It's to state the obvious. So it shows you what the situation is. Here's some additional kind of survey uh, of millennials, which is, again, those under 35 on their international outlook. A 2011 Pew poll comparing the views of millennials under 35 uh, with what's generally called the silent generation, which is the generation that's over 65. Uh, I don't know why they call it that. Most of the 65-year-olds I know are not silent. Um, but to show the stark difference, um, two-thirds of millennials today, 66% said that relying too much on military force to defeat terrorism leads to hatred and more terrorism. Only 41% of those over 65 agree with that statement. So you have a 25% gap. In addition, more than 6 in 10, 62% of millennials today say it is accept acceptable for an individual to refuse to fight in a war that he or she believes is morally wrong. That number is closer to a, a third for those over 65. Big gap. Millennials are also much more likely to favor multilateralism over unilateralism and the use of diplomacy rather than relying on military strength. Um, the differences extend way beyond just the proper use of force, even the identification of American interests. I'll give you another example. Whereas uh, close to half of over 65 years, same Pew poll, by the way, o over half of 65 and older uh, believe that the U.S. should follow its interests even when its allies disagree. Uh, just under 29% of millennials agree with that statement. The same Pew poll also looked for different outlooks on specific policies. To give you an example, nearly 7 in 10 millennials say it is more important to build a strong economic relationship with China, whereas only 25% says it's important to get tough with China. The numbers are almost reversed for those over 65. According to another series of polls done by the Chicago Council for Global Affairs, millennials also have the highest percentage saying it would be, and this is a quote, better for the U.S. to stay out of world affairs at nearly 50% a figure that not only has risen steadily over the last decade, because they, they've asked the same questions you know, almost every year, every other year, but it's also the highest of any generational cohort. So to give you a sense of perspective, as we operate, and I'll get to this in a second, as we, what we do on campuses, we operate on campuses advocating you know, functionally robust American leadership in the world, we know that today's students are not predisposed to this view. Fourth and finally, the state of free speech on campus. I'm sure all of you have watched various incidents over the last 18 months or two years relating to free speech, free inquiry, and academic debate on, on American universities. Uh, at the University of Missouri, when this a year and a half ago, you had a professor publicly harass and, and sought to physically prevent a journalist from recording a protest. Uh, at Yale, you had two professors who were attacked and ultimately resigned 
for deigning to stand up for the right of students to wear a Halloween costume. In the spring, uh, former mayor of New York City, Michael Bloomberg, gave the commencement address at Michigan, and I, I want to quote this because I really like this quote. Commencement address at Michigan, he said, quote, the fact that some university boards and administrations now bow to pressure and shield students from these ideas through safe spaces, code words, and trigger warnings is, in my view, a terrible mistake. The whole purpose of college is to learn how to deal with difficult situations, not run away from them. A microaggression is exactly that, micro. And one of the most dangerous places on a college campus is a safe space, because it creates a false impression that we can insulate ourselves from those who hold different views. We can't do this, and we shouldn't try, not in politics, not in the workplace. In the global economy and in democratic society, an open mind is the most valuable asset you can possess." End quote. My view, a wonderful statement, not even a controversial one. If you look at the video, he was audibly booed by a large part of the student body. You can, you can find it on YouTube, audibly booed. And Would they boo John Stewart? Well, <laughs> it's, a, it's a broader problem. And to give you even, even more so, and this I didn't hear on the video, but. But, but having, t having talked to one of the mayor's advisors told me recently that someone actually, the mayor heard it in that, someone audibly yelled um, on camera, but he audibly yelled F you uh, to the mayor. And what pissed the mayor off the most is that he just didn't have a pithy reply in return, right, as opposed to the actual concept. But it just shows you that a statement like that, and you and I were talking earlier about the University of Chicago statement that came out a few months ago, a statement like that, it's not, it's not even a, a political statement. It's not a controversial statement. It says you are here to have an open mind and learn things and form opinions and then have to defend them. It's not that complicated. But sadly, these anecdotes are borne out by surveys. In a recent Gallup poll, 27% of college students believe that colleges should be able to establish policies to restrict expressing political views that are upsetting or offensive to certain groups. That's more than one in four. A majority of college students, 54%, agree that the climate on their campus prevents some people from saying things they believe because otherwise, because other people might find them offensive. And 50% of college students believe Americans do a poor job of seeking out and listening to differing viewpoints. For the most part, these attitudes or these issues have not bled over into the realm of international affairs, except for, you know, frankly, except for the assault on pro-Israel forces on college campuses today, and that's only the tip of the spear. However, for those slightly older, old enough to remember the, the debate around the Iraq War, especially on college campuses, or, or even older than that on Vietnam, one could truly be concerned in this climate that if we should find ourselves in a high con highly controversial or high casualty conflict in the future, how that might play out in the academic environment on college campuses. So where does that leave us? And this is where the State of the Union is not strong, right? Where does that leave us? One is you have academic disciplines of political science and history are discouraging and disincentivizing the study of diplomacy, strategy, and military history. Two, faculty believe that the most pressing international issue facing the United States is climate change, leading to a de-emphasis in the study of, of traditional international relations. Third, a generation of students that is far more uncomfortable with the American use of force, far more uncomfortable with the unilateral pursuit of an American interest, and far more likely to believe the U.S. should not play an active role in world affairs. And when you take these things together and you add the shadow of the chilling effect of these anti-free speech issues you have on campus, you really do have a perfect storm. So I'm, I'm done with the bad part of it. Now I can talk about the good part of it, which is tell you a little bit about what I do and what we do at the Alexander Hamilton Society to kind of try and combat this and actually take advantage of some of the opportunities that present themselves. So as Mac mentioned, we were founded uh, six years ago in 2010. 
out of concern over what's being taught on college campuses broadly in the fields of foreign policy and national security, very broadly. If it's not evident from my remarks, uh, we believe that students are not being educated in a perspective that emphasizes a series of principles primarily about the importance of strong American leadership in the world, that's, whether that's military, economic, or moral. Our mission is to identify, educate, and launch young men and women into policy-relevant careers in the serious study of America's important role in the world. We do this by creating student-run but faculty-advised campus chapters that organize debates on foreign policy and national security issues. Our, our hope uh, is that 10 or 20 years from now, many of America's leaders, today, America's future leaders, will have gotten their start in the Alexander Hamilton Society chapter on their camp campus. And in a few short years, we've had a lot of growth. Last year, we had 10,000 students attend our events across the country. Um, our debates average about 75 students per debate. And it really is a testament, I think, frankly, to despite all the doom and gloom I was saying before, that there actually is a deep hunger among students to engage on these issues because they're not getting it in their classroom. So what do we broadly do? And I'll, and I can, and I'll explain this. We do broadly do three things. First, we deploy, frankly, phenomenal and serious scholar practitioners to campuses to debate local faculty on topics of the students' choosing. Literally, as I'm speaking here, uh, it's sort of like the situation room in the sense that if there were a lot of clocks on the wall that tell me what different things that are happening all over the world, this is what we have going on literally today. We've got a debate at Marquette on North Korea's uh, nuclear ambitions. We've got a debate at Brown on the America's role in the global refugee crisis. We've got a debate at SICE up the street. I'm a little turned around, but I think that way broadly. Debate at SICE on resourcing the defense budget. Uh, we have a lecture at University of Dallas on what working in a think tank looks like, and we have an open house at University of Oregon. So it, it kind of shows you at any one time we have a lot of different things going on. These debates that we do are totally open to the public. They're very well attended, and they can have a major difference on the intellectual life of a campus. In some campuses, we've become the foreign policy organization to go to because there really is nothing else. Um, for you know, for the most part, the reason that we do this, and if you look at our website, our kind of very broad principles, is because an 18 or 19-year-old, uh, I mean, I know at IWP you guys are master's students, so students are older, but an 18 or 19-year-old, for the most part, they don't really know what they think. They don't really know who they are. They don't know what they're interested in. They don't show up the campus and say, I'm a conservative, show me the conservative foreign policy stuff. Or I'm a progressive, show me the progressive foreign policy stuff. They say, I'm interested in current events, I'm interested in foreign affairs, or I'm interested in China, or Egypt, or Iran, or what have you. What classes should I take? What should I major in? What newspaper or magazine should I try and you know, comp or write for? Uh, what summer program should I do? And so to engage with an organization like us that really sponsors debates, gives them a big tent and an open door for people to come through. In addition to the big public debate, our speakers also have a private meal with the student officers in our chapter after the debate. This is an opportunity for students to dive a little bit deeper uh, into whether well, it was the issue that was debated, you know, what should the United States do about Russia, free trade or fair trade, uh, should the United States promote democracy in the world. I mean, it, these are students generate the topics, but they can dive into those or other issues, but it's really more of an opportunity for the students to forge a relationship with uh, the Hamilton speaker, but also the, the professor on campus and the advisor a little bit more. Uh, mentorship opportunities, recommendations for how to learn more about X or Y, and sometimes, and this has happened, we have students who procure internships basically out of that meal. They, are, they manage to impress that speaker. Speaker works at a you know, think tank in Washington or uh, has a research project on their campus and they're looking for someone to do work for them, whatever it is. It's an opportunity to build that network. 
So the debates bring the content to students that they might not otherwise have. They build relationships between the student leaders and the Hamilton speakers. And they also demonstrate a different viewpoint um, than that that's traditionally getting taught from their professors. I want to talk about this for a minute. And, and it relates to the first part of my speech that I mentioned. We assume that because of things like the internet, uh, or you know, uh, what used to be the public library, right? we were talking a little bit earlier about microfiches, but what used to be the public library, that anyone can find anything that they are looking for. And that if you're getting uh, a speech, a perspective that you know, you're not, it doesn't feel right to you, or you're interested in more, you, you know exactly where to look. You can find anything, right? Anybody who watches MSNBC can flip the channel to Fox. That may be true, but you still need to know what it is you're looking for. You need to know what questions to ask. And that's tough at any age, but especially at a young one, especially at 18 to 22. Sometimes it's inspiration. Sometimes it's guidance. I'm sure most of us in this room can speak to a certain professor, a certain speaker, a certain book, something that led you down the path that you ended up going on. So when they hear something in their classes, how do they know whether it's right or wrong? How do they know whether they agree with it or not? And I'll give you two examples. The first, and this is an example that happened to a Hamilton student. Uh, he told me the story back in April. He said that in his class, they were learning about the Iraq War, uh, and his professor said that Paul Wolfowitz was a war criminal. Not, not in a joking way, not in a provocative way, just as fact, and just kept going. And the student, he's telling me this after the fact, he, the student says, look, I, you know, I don't know quite enough about the Iraq War, but that doesn't sound to me as really a good way to teach something, right? But I don't know what to do. And it's a common question. This stuff happens all the time. because. In order for the student to be able to uh, push back for the professor, there's multiple steps that need to happen. One is they need to be able to differentiate between fact and opinion. 18-year-old is, I mean, for many of us, but an 18-year-old is very difficult to do. If you watch the media today, tell me what's fact and what's opinion. Two, once they do that, they need to be able to have the intellectual ammunition Right, to be able to push back and raise their hand and say, you know, uh, you know I, the definition of a war criminal is in the Geneva Conventions, it's this. I'm not really sure this fits. Could you explain to me? You know, the Iraq War may have been good or bad, but that's separate than a war criminal, right? That they don't have that full body of knowledge. And third, and at the end of the day, in some ways this is the most critical one, they need to have a lot of courage uh, to challenge a professor. It's, it's a, a demigod, someone they look up to. It's very difficult. And finally, even if they do manage to do that, they know full well there's no way they're going to be able to convince the professor that they're wrong or they, there's a different way of looking at it. And all it will do is hurt their grades because the professor has full control over that. So as a consequence, it's not intentional. So, I mean, some professors, sure it is. But for the most part, it's not intentional. But there are is limited room for a student to be able to challenge a professor uh, on a viewpoint that they express in their coursework. So that's one example. I'll give you another one, which is more positive, but it shows you the danger of the situation as well. And this one's personal. Maybe my favorite class I took in college was called Civil Liberties in America. I was basically a con law 101 class, a uh, study of uh, major Supreme Court cases, First Amendment, Fourth Amendment, Ninth Amendment, what have you. And I had a professor who was, uh, clerked for a Supreme Court justice, was phenomenal. This is before TED Talks, would take a microphone and wander around the room and wouldn't miss a stride. And he'd argue one side of the case. You know, the, the, the neo-Nazis should be able to march in Skokie, or yes, you can burn the American flag, or whatever these famous cases. He'd argue one side of the case. And I'd be totally convinced, totally, utterly convinced. Of course, that's the way it needs to go. And then he'd flip a switch, and he'd argue the other side of the case. And at the end, I'd be totally and utterly convinced again that that's the way to go. 
right? And so afterwards, and with a little bit of perspective, I realized a couple things. One is, wow, these are actually really difficult topics. And in that case, there may be a right and wrong in the sense that the Supreme Court ruled in a certain direction. But these are hard topics. And no one in the, in the sphere that we're in, whether you're trying to tackle Syria or China or Russia or cyber or North Korea, has a you know, easy, microwavable answer. Right, that, that you can pop in. It's very difficult, so that's one. Two, good for him to do both sides of an argument and say, you know, I might have my own opinion, but here are two very different perspectives looking at it. And finally, me as a student, if I don't have a foundation in these issues, I can be easily manipulated as the wrong word because it sounds nefarious, but I'm a, I'm a feather in a wind. Right? If I don't know what perspective to look through something, even if someone is giving me a very informed take on it, I can buy it wholesale and then buy the, the, a totally 180-degree one wholesale again over time. And this is some of the issues that you face with students in, in, uh, in some of their coursework. So the debates, these debates that we do, uh, try and solve both those issues. One is they take it out of the classroom. Um, it means that it's not susceptible to uh, intimidation or pressure usually just self-censorship on the student's part about grades and viewpoints and things like that. And the second, it brings an expert in that, that can challenge, of equal stature, that can challenge the logic, assumptions, conclusions, strategy, what have you, of the argument of their debating counterpart. And it inspires students to ask questions right, after these debates or during about the course of study and, and what the topic is. My favorite post-reaction a post-event reaction our speakers get from students, and we track all of this, is something along the lines of this. Students going up to a speaker afterwards and saying something along the lines of this. I'm not sure I agree with what you said, but I've never heard that argument before. It's kind of interesting to me. And can you spell the names of the three authors you mentioned? Because I would like to go read the books you mentioned and learn more. Right? We don't count these as success stories for us, for AHS, because I, you, know, you don't know what happens exactly afterwards. But it's really gratifying because it means that we're providing a perspective, providing uh, a, a subject matter that these students just otherwise would not have gotten in that way. So that's the first thing we do on these campuses. The second is that we take an elite number, a select number of students, and we bring them to off-campus conferences to educate them more. We take the best of our student officers. In fact, uh, they actually have to apply to do this. And we bring them together several times a year for deeper dives. So this past June, we did a, a conference here in DC for two and a half days for students, 55 students. They heard from Elliot Abrams on world order. They heard from Senator Jim Talent on uh, defense budget. They heard from Doug Holtz-Aiken, who's the former head of the CBO on economic statecraft, and many others. Next month, we're sending 20 students to the Foreign Policy Initiative annual forum. And then in early December, or I guess they're both next month, in, in early December, we're leading a delegation of 25 students to the Reagan National Defense Forum, uh, which is, if you're not familiar with it, has been called, I think, I think uh, 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 praisingly, the Davos of Defense. Um, I, don't think, I don't think it's a pejorative. But, and why is that in particular? And, and it's a senior level defense conference held at the Reagan Library. The Secretary of Defense is addressed every year, four years in a row. It's really an impressive group of people. We're the only students there. And this is why it's key. This is why it's important for students. First, unless the students are in ROTC, it is doubtful that they've been exposed to any broad-based military affairs whatsoever. As I mentioned, it's, military history is not really being taught. Uh, military analysis, certainly at an undergraduate level, it, it maybe was never taught, I guess, un uh, unless you're an, an ROTC. Um, uh, for many students, because there are so few who do serve in that way, they maybe have never actually, they don't know anybody or they don't know their peers who have served. 
And so all of a sudden being thrown into that environment, being exposed to these issues is really eye-opening for a lot of students. Second is why does the Reagan Forum want our students there? It's because they realize that there's a huge gap between, again, to go back to some of these surveys, the views of the, the millennial generation or the current students and the views of a couple generations beyond them. There's a big, big gap in worldview, especially when it comes to the use of force. And so being able to expose them at a younger age and get them interested, that doesn't mean, and nor would they ever say, obviously, that the use of force is always the answer. That's not the point. But if you don't understand it, then you tend to fear it. And getting them to understand a little bit better is a big difference. And here's an example also where that uh, exposure, that networking between our students and some of the more senior folks can actually make a big difference, frankly, in US policy. And I'll give you an example. Last year, and this is, I can send you the videos if you're interested, last year, Reagan Defense did a panel on, I think it was called Bridging the Gap between the 1.5% or 1.8% who serve in the armed forces and the 98% or 98.5% who don't. And they asked if we had a student uh, ROTC uh, member who might be interested in, in serving on the panel. Uh, we actually reached out to an alumni of ours who's the founder of our UVA chapter. It's a guy named of, of, uh, Joe Riley. Um, great guy, really a total rock star. Uh, he had founded the UVA chapter for us. We'd helped, we'd written, I think, some ledger recommendation for him. Uh, he was doing it, uh, he received a Rhodes Scholarship. He was doing his master's and then is wrapping up his PhD at, at Oxford. So we flew him out to, to California to sit on the panel. The panel was the Chief of Staff of the Army, uh, Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa, the former head of uh, DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, and the fourth speaker I can't remember, and, and Joe. Um, and the rest of them are talking about you know, what the civilian world can do to kind of just better understand the military and, it's, and then get to Joe. And Joe basically says to this effect, saying, you know, it would be a little better if the Army understood the civilian wor world as well. And he says, I'll give you an example. He said, I'm, I'm doing a Broad Scholarship. Three weeks ago, I got demobilization orders. The Army wanted to kick me out. This is doing the Army Reserve. Everybody sort of laughed, saying, why would they want to kick you out? And he said, well, the Army has a upper out uh, promotion structure. Um, I'm off doing my road, so I'm clearly not moving up <laughs> uh, in, the, in the ladder. So they wanted to kick me out. And he said, look, I'm someone who, you know, I, you know, I don't know exactly where this is going to go, but I thought I'd have a lifelong career in the Army. But if it's forcing me to make choices like not doing a Rhodes Scholarship or what have you, I, I have to reevaluate. And, and it's, again, it's all on video. It's great. And in more colorful language than this, the chief of staff of the Army who's sitting on the panel basically says, you're mine, uh, and I'm going to take care of this. And so as the story goes, he tries to tackle, takes on the case, uh, tries and tackle the issue, actually is unsuccessful. Chief of Staff of the Army can't fix the Army personnel system. I mean, it's a small example of a much bigger problem. He actually brings the issue up to Secretary Carter. Um, and for those of you who follow this stuff, Secretary Carter has been working on these Future of the Force initiatives about uh, how to basically make uh, army or military career more attractive and, and for the Army to attract uh, kind of more of the best and the brightest when uh, a lot of other careers are becoming uh, just much more financially competitive, all these sorts of stuff. And Secretary Carter, in a June speech, name checks Joe Riley as an example for some of the efforts that they need to shift so that you can allow career folks to go out and do Rhodes uh, fellowships uh, and come back. So it's just an example of how being able to hear from younger people actually can have an impact on you know, the, way, the way the US uh, military works. And the, the last big thing we do this summer, we're actually launching a one-week uh, intensive summer seminar for 15 students um, and trying to inculcate them in the foundational frameworks of American foreign policy. The, final, the third and final thing we do, and I'll basically close on this, is that we try and help launch their professional careers so that the ideas that are embodied in them can rise through the ranks, whether that's in policy, 
academia, military, private sector. We offer uh, summer, uh, summer uh, scholarships for a select number of our officers who intern in DC during the summer, who otherwise might not be able to afford it. Uh, as many of you know, the cost of, of living in DC has skyrocketed. For an 18, 19, or 20 year old, it's really, really crazy. And while some schools, you know, having done my, uh, my graduate work at Georgetown and my undergraduate work at Harvard, some schools are very well endowed and there is a lot of funding for students, most are not like that. And so I know way too many students who uh, have had to turn down basically an unpaid internship because they said, I, I cannot afford, it puts me in the hole $6,000 in DC for a summer between the opportunity cost of not getting paid job and having to live in DC. This happens all the time. So being able to offer some financial assistance for them makes a big difference. Uh, we also curate a jobs and internship uh, database or, or bank for them, for students, as a one-stop shop for careers in this area. All sorts of things that come through. For most of the students, they don't really know where to look sometimes. Um, and finally, we act to be, or we, we seek to be, and we are already to some degree, a bridge or a pipeline for all these students into the DC policy world. Getting your first break in DC is incredibly, incredibly difficult. Once you're here, you're a little older, it's hard enough, but it's a little better. And I'll give you an example. I got a email in June from a uh, former uh, national security advisor to a vice president that went along the lines of this. Hey, Gabe, uh, I hear you might be able to help me out. I need a research assistant for the summer. Uh, I'm doing a project on 18th century French military history. So this person needs to speak fluent French, have done some archival work, and knows a little bit about military affairs. We go back and forth a little bit just to get a sense of exactly what looking for. Okay, the next day I send out what is functionally an action alert to our network of current students. It was a Friday. By the end of the weekend, I had three resumes and three cover letters. I sent what I thought was the best one over to him on Monday. On Wednesday or Thursday, he says, great, thank you so much. I have my researcher for the summer. And she was a rising junior at our Columbia University chapter, French-American citizen, uh, political science major, and really loved it. There's a lot of people in DC that are constantly looking for interns or entry-level talent, but they don't know where to go for it, or it's going to take too much time. Um, or they, they don't have an organization they can work with. So we are trying in some way to act as that bridge between all the, the hinterland, all the campuses around the country and the mothership, which is in DC. And the difference you can make in somebody by getting them a good A-level, you know, fast-track job coming out of college in this world, they are, I'm, I wish I had studies on this, they are 20 times more likely to succeed uh, going forward than somebody who either can't afford it or doesn't have the right recommendations or things like that. And it's not because students aren't smart. It's because that's just not how DC works. I interviewed, a, a, for when I was hiring in the spring, I interviewed a young woman uh, who graduated from a, a school that we don't have a chapter at. Uh, she'd won every departmental award uh, in her department history you could think of, every university-wide award you can think of, a couple state-wide awards you can think of, Phi Beta Kappa, Summa Cum Laude. When I spoke to her uh, references, they were so uh, praising and glorious about her, all these wonderful things. Uh, she had two telecommuting part-time internships at you know, uh, B-list or C-list places in DC. And you sort of wonder what happened. And after meeting with her, I sort of realized, saying, just because she was an all-star, because nobody knew who she was or who her recommenders were, because nobody could pick up the phone and have that relationship of trust in the way it works in Washington, she fell through the cracks. And she's a rock star, so she's going to figure her way back up. But had there been a Hamilton Society chapter there, had she been involved with our network of speakers, Right? Had, had I been able, or somebody in our network been able to make a phone call, this girl would have been brilliant. She still will be, but just another example. So our, our successes thus far were new, but we have students of ours who've gone on, I mentioned earlier, Rhodes Scholar, 
Boren Scholar, uh, the initial uh, Steve Schwartzman Scholarship in China, if you've heard of this, Fulbright Scholars, uh, alumni that have worked in a variety of think tanks, AEI, CSBA, FPI, Hudson, uh, working in a variety of Hill offices, including in the Speaker of the House office, alumni that have gone on to found tech firms, private equity firms, a really a, a bunch of different things. So uh, just in conclusion, and I'd really love to kind of hear your thoughts and how you, how you all see this in, in, in working in this space, but we really feel that we are, or we, and we can be critical to the intellectual interrogation and the search for reason that students are looking for on college campuses today. Uh, we need to encourage young people to think seriously about our nation's place in the world and how to advance and promote our interests, uh, both at home but chiefly abroad. Uh, to do so, their minds need to be provoked, um, their reasoning needs to be stimulated, um, their assumptions need to be challenged, um, and by bringing an alternative viewpoint than the one they're traditionally getting, and I don't mean just that ideologically in terms of American leadership, I mean also substantively in the sense that an organization that believes deeply in the need to learn history to understand what you're doing in the world. You engage in civil debate, but it opens the minds of a lot of these students. And so we really do feel that we're responding right, to some of the challenges that we see that I outlined earlier. That it's an as bad as some of these items or axes of, of, of principles might be, there really is an opportunity for groups like ours, but I'm sure many others, to try and uh, 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 quench um, and give students an opportunity to engage with some of the topics that they're really interested in. So. Thank you, and again, I'm happy to obviously chat and learn more from all of you, so thank you. So we've started chapters on 69 campuses. Um, I say started because one of the most difficult things with students, and this is true of any campus chapters, is continuity and sustainability. And so we have a lot of chapters that uh, you know, opened, had a couple events, and then folded because those students graduated and they didn't do a good job of passing it on. So, so far this year, and it's only October, we've had events at 32 campuses. Um, and my guess is by the end of the year it'll be about 40, which is kind of where we are on a consistent basis. And I, I'm, I became executive director uh, in early spring this year. And so one of my uh, major focuses has been that we don't want to start chapters in places where we don't have a strong faculty advisor. Faculty advisor doesn't run the events, the students put them all on, they run it, but the faculty advisor, hopefully a tenured one, the faculty advisor uh, uh, doesn't leave every four years. The faculty advisor acts as that long pole in the tent. Uh, he or she can advertise uh, for new blood coming in through their coursework, uh, help troubleshoot issues that we have with uh, college administrators sometimes that come up, act as a mentor, as a resource for the students. Uh, and they, they're wonderful because they actually, they don't want to be paid. They, they are similarly concerned uh, with us, as us, that what these students are getting is just not what it could be. So uh, we have great uh, name recognition, the brand is growing. In this last six months, I've had 14 independently solicited requests to start chapters on campuses. Um, just come to us, not us reaching out. And it usually goes along the lines of this, which is, you know, I went to high school with Barton, who goes to Ohio State. He's the Hamilton Society president chapter there. I'd love to start one at Indiana, right? Or I studied abroad with Mary, uh, in Barcelona, uh, I go to BC. She's, you know, Hamilton Society chapter head at Notre Dame or whatever. Like, I'd love to start one here. That students have a way of kind of talking about this real quick. So, this is not even from us sitting down and saying, how do we actively promote something at different campuses? What sort of pushback do you get from uh, administrations? So. Um, there's two, there's two types of push, 
how to answer this succinctly and then go into it. Uh, the answer is generally not a lot, but it does happen. And it happens usually along two uh, uh, buckets of issues. Uh, one is uh, the issue of uh, political ideology. Um, basically, you do have administrators, more of the administrators than professors, frankly, I, I, in my experience, but administrators who uh, see that the worldview in which that we are advocating uh, is, uh, is, uh, is contradictory to their own, let's say, and they don't want it to show up on campus as a way of doing that. We have ways around that. Frankly, that's part of the reason we do debates. We actually, this is not a secret society in any way, right? We are trying to engage with these ideas. And when students actually see that the roadblocks to them doing, because it's the students who are doing the applying for club status on campus, right? Student-led. When the students see this, uh, their eyes open. I'll give you an example. And, and again, sometimes it's administrative and sometimes academic. This is an academic example. At, at the University of Oregon, at, right, you said, right, University of Oregon, we had students last spring, I think it was in April, May, who wanted to do a debate on US policy towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, US policy towards uh, uh, Israel. They asked a speaker on uh, a professor at their campus uh, to give the more kind of pro-third worldist point of view. He said, yes, great. Uh, they came, they, you know, came to us to pick the speaker off our list, uh, who's a former DOD official who's a fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, if you're familiar with them. Uh, he said, yes, great. Uh, went back to the professor, the original professor being, okay, this is, the, this is the debate. The guy said, no, 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 no. I will not debate that, you know, fascist, Zio, warmongering, pro, whatever, right? And the students who don't know any better, because the students, for the most part, are inured from the faculty or academic politics, and they should be, it's really an, an ugly swamp, but they don't, they don't understand. They, they said to him, they said, well, you can, look, we wouldn't recommend it, but if you want to say all these things on stage to him, I guess you could. It is a debate, and you will both have equal amounts of time to say what you want. And he said, I will not share a stage with that person. And so the students come to us, and they sort of have a fight or flight moment. They say, do, do we do something wrong? What's the issue here? And we say, look, at the end of the day, it's student-led, so it's up to you to decide what to do. Um, but just so you know, you did nothing wrong. This is the state of uh, debate. Uh, especially on Israel stuff, but in general, on a more conservative internationalist outlook on foreign policy on campuses. Uh, if he, a tenured faculty member, is scared of debating his expertise, that tells you more something about him than it does about you, um, especially at, at an academic institution which theoretically you're supposed to be able to push the limit, of all places, push the limits. And so in the end they said, screw him, we're going to find somebody else to do the debate we want because we're interested in the topic. And they did, and I think 180 people showed up. So, that's one type of pushback we get. The other type of pushback uh, is frankly more bureaucratic or, uh, or um, uh, organizational in the sense that uh, a lot of moribund or lethargic campus-specific organizations feel that we are a competitor and we're much more lively and we're connected to a national network. So you'll have things like, I'm, I'm making it up, but, and I'll give you an example because we're not on this campus, but if at the University of Iowa there is a political student union or something that does debates, but it's just at Iowa, right? It's not connected to a national thing, and they do something once a year. An AHS chapter to come in, right, and basically not, not do the exact same thing, but overlap a lot with the students that might be interested in that, that has the resources to fund that, um, that could be much more lively, and for the student's perspective, connect them to students and, and people all around the country, that is a threat, which is why I call it kind of a bureaucratic pushback, right? It's turf, turf war to a certain degree. 
And that is much more complicated for us to get around, and that's happened on occasion. We try and, and, and do it, demonstrate that we're fully collaborative. We encourage our students to, if they want to co-sponsor uh, events with other groups on campus, that's great. Uh, at Ohio State, the first event this year, they co-sponsored a debate uh, on foreign policy between the Ohio State College Republicans and Ohio State College Democrats and had a functionally a, a Trump surrogate and a Hillary surrogate debate, and AHS hosted it. Right, So we have ways of doing that, but a lot of places just push back on that end. So. But generally, it doesn't come from students, which is the interesting part. It's almost always from an administrator or a faculty. Students, we have students who have engaged with us. And at the end of the day, they'll say things like, you know, I don't totally buy into your principles, but I totally think this should exist on campus. The students are much more open-minded uh, than, not even our students, generally the students are much more open-minded than, than professors or administrators. And I, I'm, I'm painting this with a very broad brush. So you know, it's, there's a lot of differences in there and a lot of nuance, but yeah. Yeah. What are some of the challenges with admissions? With? Admissions by getting into a graduate program. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> someone else in the room might be more qualified to, to speak about that. But you know, for, for us, or what we see with the students, a lot of times, is uh, number one is they don't know what they're looking for. Um, so you know, being able to help uh, advise them or, or, or guide them in, in that way can make a big difference. The second, and this is also the value of our network, uh, but again, someone at IWP could probably speak more to it, is that a lot of our faculty members obviously are also f the same faculty members at those same graduate institutions. And so being, for our students to be able to develop relationships with some of these faculty members as undergrads, whatever, three, four years later when they're thinking about graduate school, they do have those network of people already there. And the major difference between undergraduate admissions at most places and graduate admissions is undergraduate admissions are generally handled by professional admissions staff, not by the faculty. Uh, whereas in PhD departments and most master's school, they're handled by or heavily handled by faculty. And so as a consequence, if somebody is in that room uh, 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 basically bidding on you or vouching for you in that room, that makes a big difference. Whereas in the undergraduate world, is totally different. So we hope, again, we're, we're six years old. So our oldest alumni are basically 28 years old, right? And we have some graduate school chapters, but our oldest alumni are basically 28 years old. So we're only now, we only now have a couple that have graduated college, gone on to work for a couple years, and now entered grad school. So if you ask me in a couple years, I'll actually have much more data from you from, from within our own system. How are we? I I raise the money, so by people like by people like all of you around the room. So we're a nonprofit organization. Um, you know we're 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 well endowed by a number of, of benefactors. Um, we actually do have membership dues among students and professionals. They're very very low, um, but we do and it does help us. But we're a very very small organization. So. Uh, and, and my board of directors would be angry at me if I didn't make the pitch. So if you are interested uh, in supporting students and supporting some of the topics I talk about, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. But it's, it's a tough challenge. I'm Missy Wertheim with Enable Postgraduate School, and I never went to grad, I never went to graduate school. My mother got her PhD at 31 and told me not to go to graduate school. So I've done the John Dewey route I've, I've learned by doing. Um, and I started life at the Peace Corps. I was the first person hired on the Peace Corps staff two days before Kennedy announced it. Uh, I look back 40 years ago, at this very time, or a week from now, I started setting up the national security clusters with Jimmy Carter because he didn't know anybody. Mm -hmm. So watching this shift in time, 
faculty that we started with are now getting close to 80, and they're still teaching what they learned in graduate school. And, and what I look at is how the um, tenured system doesn't encourage, all you have to do is write and have your peers review it so that if you have new ideas, you publish it in the Sunday Times or in Foreign Affairs or Foreign Policy. And I think there's a real handicap in the system, and I don't have any idea how to get around that. Well, it's, it's an issue because, the, as you point out, the nature of the tenure system, and it's not just uh, the tenure track jobs, not just hiring, it's also the journals. It's the same, it's the same setup, right? Because it's peer-reviewed, as you put it. Um, it makes it so that you're only going to hire people who think like you. Well, but the problem I've watched at MIT is that the young students, when they're writing their thesis, they don't write according to the channel that their advisor is thinking. It doesn't get accepted. If they're on the faculty and they're not in this rigid channel, they don't get promoted. I mean, I... So, so I don't have an... I don't have an answer for you because I agree with you entirely with the problem. Uh, the best way I've seen people try and get around it is that finding, you, ju you just need one, but finding a single faculty mentor or benefactor to be your advisor and to argue on your behalf. And there's always one, even today, there's always one at almost every single university. And if you have someone, in, and for the most part universities are such that the department as a whole collectively Right, might have an ethos, a culture along the lines of what you say, but it's still made up of individuals. And so you'll never really find somebody who will uh, you know, argue on your behalf, who will take you under their wing, that you can do your decision according that way. I'll give you my own, my own experience at, at Georgetown. Uh, even though I was trained in some of the quantitative uh, methodology stuff that I mentioned before, my interest is functionally diplomatic history, even though in political science department. So it took me a while, but I found uh, you know, three or four faculty advisors. And Georgetown's better than most places, partly because it is in Washington. But three or four who agreed with me in terms of the way I wanted to approach my studies and the project I wanted to take on. And once I got their buy-in, the rest of the department mattered less. Now, I also wasn't interested in a tenure-track academic job. And so I could afford to ignore uh, the uh, academic peer review journals as much uh, more so than somebody else. I could afford to bypass some of the uh, 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 political science conferences where you present papers and, and things of that sort um, because I would have to be exposed much more so in that way. But in terms of my own academic experience and how it could help me in a lot of different ways, I was able to isolate or, or, or find a more, uh, uh, not a hidden path, but find a, a uniquely suited path to be able to do that. And when people also, I think, especially the PhD students, and this is advice anybody will give you on any, any side of things, is pick the people you want to work for. Pick the people you want to train under, right? So whether it's MIT or, or Georgetown or, or, uh, or SICE or wh whatever, pick, pick your institution, right? Then obviously the, the overall quality and the branding institution matters a lot. That's totally true. But at the end of the day, your um, uh, successes are going to, or your uh, accomplishments are going to rise and fall based on your relationship primarily with your primary advisor. You use a very important word, relationship. I've never heard a, poli a political science professor say relationships matter. Relationships well, that's, that's why I'm not a political science professor. <laughs> no, 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 but it's this whole business of they have these rigid, the ones I know have these rigid ways, and they never talk about the, I mean, in diplomacy, if you don't have relationships, you don't have anything. I agree. I wish I could add to your, I agree. <laughs> Next up, Dave, thank you for what you're doing. It's a 
connected. I, I think, Nancy, what you said is, is important too. I think graduate students need, I, I mean, I used to call it a survival strategy. <laughs> <laughs> what you need to navigate through this. I don't know that you're totally right. I don't know that all the universities, there's someone who can, you know, I, I was speaking with a broad name. brush, so but, yeah. Uh, the question I want to ask was, uh, particularly at the doctoral level, do you have relationships with, say, key faculty who uh, people could kind of be taken under their wing? You know, when I was at graduate school, Mac, I mean, there were people out there. You know, I studied under Bill Van Cleef at Southern Cal. There was Harold Ruby Claremont, you know, Kintner at Penn. Uh, you had um, Bob Falsgraf. Uh, uh, at, at Fletcher, I mean, there were places you could go. Did you kind of keep track of that, where, where students can go for doctoral programs? So we, 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 we don't in a system, we don't in any systematic way, but only because we're s still a very young organization. Right. Yeah. Um, and frankly, also to, to go to, the, to, to your point about applying for graduate school, is that we actually don't, because we're young, we don't quite have a large cohort that are yet, from our alumni, applying for PhD programs. Right. That said, um, I do think it is somewhere we're going to head to because a lot of the professors who are advisors of ours on these campuses, obviously they all also advise PhD students. And, and you, know, you might want to talk to the Rumsfeld folks here because a lot of what they do literally is be able to connect uh, graduate students with faculty advisors to kind of build that network and get them under their wing. Given the state of play that you laid out and it's quite depressing. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but the, you know, that, I think something like that will have to happen at, at some point in order to get, uh, get some change because the, it's the PhDs. I, so I, I, I agree. The, the, issue is, uh, the issue is, though, even, even so we do have some graduate chapters in our network. And so we do have a few PhD students who are involved in our chapters on campus. And, and they're phenomenal, and, and they're getting great uh, education under the various scholars. The issue is that, for the most part, they are oriented towards policy jobs, which is, which is great, because we need people to do that. But they're not oriented towards tenure-track academic jobs because of the difficulties we laid out here. The Supreme Court decision on 65 being um, age discrimination, that you could never just assume people would retire at the age of 65. So you, I mean, I have a friend at MIT who was 78, I guess, and up until now she's been getting full full salary. I think she teaches one uh, course collaborative with somebody else. I mean, why would you give that up, right? But it means that it doesn't provide a tenured spot for somebody else. I mean, it's really interesting watching these. But it, 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 it's also, it's also, um, Again, part, part of it is generational, too. I mean, it's not, to give you an example of people who are in that age, folks like John Gaddis or Paul Kennedy and Charlie Hill at Yale, right? Uh, obviously, a generation that passed away recently, but at Harvard, Sam Huntington, Stanley Hoffman, you know, people f forget about their political stripe were fantastic teachers because they understood uh, the, how, how to uh, engage students and give them a, a proper foundation. That generation is, is very different. Yeah, I mean, I joke, but I, I, guarantee, you know, I guarantee you that if Henry Kissinger were to apply today for a PhD program in political science with the same application as he did 60 years ago or 70 years ago, uh, he'd get rejected. Because what he would want to study, nuclear strategy or nuclear diplomacy, would, would be a total lack of interest for most people. So um, you had your hand up. I'm sorry. One more. 
Okay, so. So let me try and answer three. I think there was like a three A in there because of kind of recruitment and social media. But uh, and remind me if I miss a point. But on um, on sustainability on campuses, uh, uh, we actually this goes to my broader points. We actually sustain fairly well, just not just in a concentrated fashion, right? It's very we don't sustain well, for example, when we have one student at a university that's deep in upstate New York who has an interest. Right, but we have no faculty advisor, and they don't manage to recruit. We do an event that's great, but it falls apart. So that's something we did for some, a while because I think we were trying to grow, but now that's not our strategy anymore. For those that we actually do have a solid base of even just five or six students to start and a faculty member, those sustain very well because we do teach the students and train them saying, you can create officer positions, you need to have elections for officers, you need to think about transition, who is going to be the next president of the chapter. We spend a lot of time with them on this and we encourage things like, it's silly, but we all remember this from college, it's much easier for something to survive when the transition is done in mid-year as opposed to over the summer. Over the summer, people are away for three months, a lot easier to fall apart. You have one president finishing a, a fall term and the other new one taking a spring term, a lot easier. So on that, we've we gotten a lot better at. On how they recruit and social media, uh, obviously we, we don't do social media advertising or recruiting in any way, not, not, because, not because it's bad, just because we just have, don't have the resource, don't have the time. But the great thing about the college system is that you actually have captive audiences. Right? They're going to go through school for four years or whatever it is. They're going to be on campus. They're going to get involved in things. And so the best recruitment that we actually tend to do on those campus individuals hold these debates, hold these events. That is how you get people through the door. And it's how to expand it to other universities. Sometimes it's about students come to us, like I was mentioning. Sometimes it's we happen to know a faculty member. You know, we know a faculty member at pick your university. We ask them, hey, in your courses, do you think you have a couple students who are interested in running with this? Sometimes it can take two semesters or three semesters to get this going, but we're in it for the long haul because the problems are the long haul. So that's issue one. So on the uh, partnering with national organizations, or well, are there other national organizations that operate college camps? Uh, the most prominent ones uh, are frats, right? Because frats and sororities are everywhere. And the system is set up in a, in a similar way. You have basically your local chapters, IWPF frats. You're your local, your local chapter of whatever fraternity. And those function very well because they lead to a national network. There are other, there are some think tanks in DC that do have campus programming, mostly about, but mostly it's about pushing out their message to students. Right, the, 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 the same thing with college Dem and college Republicans, they're all affiliated with the national party. And it's mostly about pushing their message to students. A lot of our, a lot of our students originally, on, uh, Hamilton, originally got engaged through one of the partisan political organizations, but left because they said, most of what you do is phone banking and canvassing and meet and greet candidate stuff. It's less about ideas. Um, and another statistic I'm sure I could pull out is millennials especially don't like labels. And so being able to, you know, we're a nonpartisan organization, so being able to stay out of the, po the uh, explicit political mess, especially this year, um, is helpful. Um, and so we're not looking for a national organizational partnership. There aren't a lot anyways. And then the third thing on terms of like fundraising, so we do, we do get funding from uh, a number of large uh, uh, foundations um, who really do care a lot about uh, education, especially national security education at this level. Um, but 
because we because our system is set up in such a way that we are growing fast a lot of different campuses we have a very scalable system right so if we were to get a new grant of you know fifty thousand dollars or hundred thousand dollars that all of it can quickly go to programming because of the way the system is set up so a lot of my job absolutely is fundraising both individuals and foundations uh, again uh, if any of you or you know of anybody that you would like to introduce me to uh, I'm always uh, most willing because I do think that especially what's going on in this election where I don't want to get into it but it's certainly true that a discussion on America's role in the world has not been seriously had um, especially with what's going on around the world. I'm not someone who's prone to hyperbole, but frankly, you look around the world and there are far more crises today than there were just a few years ago. And finally, because of this free speech issue on campuses, you, you, you feel, we feel like we're fighting a three-front war uh, to be able to say, well, if you want to deal with these challenges and not be reactive, you've got to go back to its source. You've got to go back to the roots, and that is the education that students are getting in college. The, the, the shift in their outlooks over the course of four years, 18 to 22, is probably more than any other four-year period in our lives. You know, pe people see us that we do debates, and so a lot of people will tell me, oh, you're, you're out and about trying to change people's minds. Debate. We say, no, we're trying to get to them before they make up their mind. Because as an 18 and 19-year-old, like I said, you get in there and, and you don't know what you think. You're, you're looking to be excited. You're looking to be inspired. So it's a, it's a different model. So I'm happy to stay around afterwards to answer any questions. So, Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.